Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboone.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FITCHESH. You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 30 of the Johnson & Boone Podcast. My name is Mark, I'm the host. Joining me for the third week in a row... Uh, is the wonderful Rob Boone of Johnson & Boone fame. How are we doing, Rob? Evening, Mark. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's always nice to see your smiling face again. Neutral. Even if we're doing it distant, socially distant these days, as opposed to face-to-face. Well, I think we've said a few times over the episodes it's become the new norm now, hasn't it, to engage in Zoom and see everyone at a distance? It has indeed. Now, the reason why Rob is doing his third show on the trot as opposed to one of the other members of the Johnson & Boone team is because this is episode three, or rather part three, of a four-part series which deals specifically with the uh, purchase and sales of businesses. Um, Last week we did share and asset purchase agreements and the week before that we did due diligence uh, so if you want to go and check out those previous episodes because this if if this episode seems relevant and you want to go and check out those previous episodes then if you go to johnsonandboon.co.uk you find the podcast tab uh, where you'll find those shows you'll also find links to all the major podcast platforms where you can also listen to the show and indeed subscribe so that you don't have to go and find it ever again. Uh, If you want to listen to it through the mobile app, that's also possible. So if you go to Apple or Android app stores, you can download it for free, uh, and you'll find, again, the podcast tab there. Um, There's also a whole host of other benefits, actually, on the mobile app, which are pretty fantastic, so you can book appointments with the team you can find out all about the services uh, check out the uh, tips and advice articles that the team posts from time to time so uh, oh and of course access the legal guard membership services which if you don't know what those are now then uh, definitely go and check our previous episode where we deal with it specifically because there are some amazing benefits for Uh, individuals and business owners from uh, discounted advice um, in some cases free advice um, template letters what else is there Rob there's lots of stuff so yeah as as you say there's lots of discounts off the services there's access to a benefits portal Uh, nothing to do with our services but you can get money off lots of other stuff there's templates through the legal library um, you can become an affiliate, and if you recommend other people and they become members, 
uh, then you can earn back on their subscription. Uh, lots and lots of men, lots and lots of benefits. There's also a page on the website as well, so um, you can either watch the previous, listen to, to the previous podcast, or you can check it all out on the website. Uh, and I think there's also a video on there as well. Um, is a promo for it. Yeah, so uh, loads and loads of loads of ways of digesting all this content, and that's ultimately why we're doing it. We're trying to give as much information and arming people as best as possible so that they can deal with, uh, and in this particular instance, some very challenging times, certainly in the, the business world and probably in most people's personal lives because of the pandemic. So um, if you have a little bit of extra knowledge and that helps you swerve a landmine or um, perhaps tackle a challenge more efficiently or more successfully than you might have otherwise then we will sit much happier with ourselves that that was the case won't we Rob? Yeah that's exactly the idea Mark. So um, I've mentioned there that we're doing part one and part two have already been covered which is due diligence um, uh, sharing asset purchase agreements was last week what's the topic that we're going to be covering in part three? So this week we're going in chronological order really in terms of how the process will work and we're talking about the disclosure process. Uh, that's something as we'll discuss that is relevant to both parties but whereas the other sections are really led by the buyer, this section is very much led by the seller. Uh, we mentioned those two previous shows and the topics there. Uh, in case people either... Uh, haven't listened to those episodes or if people have but perhaps a useful quick recap do you want to just quickly cover the the diligence and the agreement elements and just explain where it all ties in in the chronology of this disclosure element yeah absolutely so in the first week we were talking about due diligence which is the process of investigation so this is in the backdrop of someone buying a business either by way of a share purchase where you buy the shares in a company or asset purchase where you're just buying specific assets from a business. The due diligence process involves the buyer making sure that they're buying what they think they're buying and there isn't any hidden surprises. We then moved on in week two to talk about the agreements themselves and they're the legal contracts that are drafted by the legal representatives and are negotiated and they include all of the terms that we discussed and important for this week, which is the link between the two, they include warranties. And warranties are legal promises that are given by the buyer over to the seller that relate to a range of things, um, such as a, a common one would be that there are no um, outstanding matters that might give rise to litigation. The assets are as they are described in terms of ownership, often IP things, uh, items like that. Disclosure, which we're moving on to this week, really relates to um, the seller's principal opportunity to protect themselves from any of the warranties that are stated by limiting them and by making disclosures that are relevant. Uh, and we'll discuss how that's done. Now, we did cover disclosure in episode 24, but it was a very different type of disclosure wasn't it that that was all um embroiled in when you're in a, a, a litigation battle and what documents you need to disclose this is a very different type of disclosure although obviously the the actions of disclosing information is the same definition but it's for a di very different purpose and it's to it's it, i suppose it entails disclosure of different things 
Yeah, that's right, Mark. So if you're involved in litigation and you're thinking about the term disclosure, this week, whilst interesting, isn't for you. You need to go back to episode 24, as you say, and that's talking about standard disclosure within court proceedings and the way in which you have to tell the other party what documents you've got, whether they affect your case positively or negatively. Disclosure here is in the context of a commercial transaction when you're buying a business. And the other side, in this instance, the buyer, is asking the seller to give them warranties, so promises that what they're buying is is as they say. And as and as I say, we'll we'll give a variety of um, examples as we move through. But a classic one would be for them to say that the business is not threatened by litigation, and the seller might say as a disclosure, warranty whatever number that it is in the contract um, is accepted, save for. And then there might be a specific threat of litigation from a customer or from a staff member or something like that. And you're disclosing that information to them. And that's so important because you're not telling them they can't have that warranty. Generally, you're saying you can have that warranty, save for this specific thing that I've told you. And that means that at a later date, they can't sue you for misleading them. So that sounds like quite a specific thing that you're disclosing there. And that actually falls into one of two types of disclosure that that are relevant for this part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. There's two types of disclosure in this context. There's specific disclosure, which is exactly as I've just described. And then there's general disclosure. And general disclosure works by basically saying that rather than a specific warranty, being uh, limited all of the warranties are limited by statements such as save for any information that is in the public domain or available on registers and a common one or some common word and that's often used is for uh, a disclosure a, a general disclosure which relates to all matters and information that would be revealed by way of an online search of company's house so you'll often be asked to give a warranty that the shareholders are the shareholders, the shares are as described, company's house records are up to date, and a buyer will often limit that by by saying, yeah, that's right, but subject to you going and having a look yourself, basically. Um, this is one of the areas, and um, we, we highlighted a few last week, but this is one of the areas when it comes to general disclosures that are more hotly debated between the buyer and the seller because the seller wants to be as general as possible and say, I've disclosed this, I've disclosed that, all in a very general way that is a catch-all. Whereas the buyer wants it to be much more specific because the reason why the warranties have been drafted is for them to take effect, not for them to be hindered by general statements that mean they no longer have effect. Yeah, so in that particular example, uh, the seller is, is trying to keep it as wide and as open as possible to cover their bases that there can be no suggestion they've hidden something or not disclosed something by kind of saying look there might be stuff out there you might find it it's not my fault if you don't find it before this agreement happens and that doesn't affect the promises that I've made whereas obviously the seller wants the buyer sorry the buyer wants the seller to go away and do the donkey work, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, 
ideally they want to say well no we want you to go away and give us stuff that gives us that certainty we want certainty because that's what we're buying absolutely and this is to a certain extent a frustrating um the process for the seller because they often feel that they've already done this at the due diligence stage they'll have been given the due diligence questionnaire they'll have filled it in they'll have given all sorts of documentation and then the warranties will be drafted sometimes as though that process didn't take place and a lot of it's repeated again and the same disclosures as you made in the uh, due diligence process will need to be repeated here um, and often the solicitors will will try to do a catch-all by making a general disclosure that everything is agreed, save for as already dis disclosed as part of the due diligence process. Um, I personally, if I'm acting on behalf of a seller, will do that. Um, and I'll also include, again, all of the documents that were disclosed at the due diligence stage, um, so far as they're still relevant. You've kind of answered my next question there, which was essentially when you were describing it then it sounded almost part and parcel of the due diligence process but what you're saying there is that the two are very separate stages and if it if it includes an element of repetition that's just merely you belts and braces to make sure there can be no suggestion that you haven't disclosed it even if you have earlier on in the process yeah, the legal representatives, when they're acting on behalf of parties in these matters, should be ensuring that everything is crystal clear. So if there's repetition, then so be it. It has to be that everything that needs to be disclosed is disclosed in the due diligence letter. Sorry, in the disclosure letter. I'll say that again for, for clarity. It needs to be that everything that needs to be disclosed is disclosed in the disclosure letter. You can't miss things out on the basis that they were the the buyer was informed of them in an email or in a previous letter or they've already got that document you have to assume that you have to you have to cover all bases and it's a it's a a, a real opportunity for the buyer to, it's a real opportunity for the seller to make sure um that the chances of litigation being brought against them at a later date is is very small so you've just mentioned a disclosure letter there where does that fit into this process at what point is that letter produced and what sort of instigates the production of that letter it usually comes in once the warranties have been finalized so there will be some negotiations to what warranties will be included and when you're acting for the seller you'll already have one eye on the ones that whilst you will agree them being in the contract will need to be limited um, because you'll know the issues in the background. So once that part of the contract is pretty much agreed, there's no reason why the disclosure letter can't be prepared. The way in which that process works is you'll sit down with your client. Often there will be involvement again from the accountant on any relevant sections. And you'll take a list by going through each warranty one by one and making sure that either it can be guaranteed or what do we need to say to the other side to limit it and to re re reduce how onerous it is. Off the back of that, you'll then prepare a draft letter and the draft letter is disclosed with all of the relevant documents um, and then it's over to the other side then, um, i.e. the buyer, and they'll go through it with their clients and perform a similar task in which they will either accept what you're saying or request further information. 
Uh, so, um, and uh, does it continue to bounce backwards and forwards then until everyone's happy that they've got everything that they want to see? It generally does. If it's if it's done well and it isn't a transaction which is you know overly lending itself to dispute, then it shouldn't be a huge process. It should be maybe backwards and forwards once or twice. From the buyer's perspective, as we touched on earlier, they are usually saying, we don't want any general disclosures. So we want you to make specific disclosures and really you should be disclosing a document to back up what you're saying. So if you're talking about, um, often you're asked for a warranty that you have all licenses in place for the business to operate. If you act for the seller, then you may, as a, as a disclosure, say, attached are all of the licenses that we have. So in that instance, what really you're saying is, we're not saying we've got every license that exists. We're saying these are the ones we've got. So if the buyer doesn't like that or the buyer thinks that something is missing, that's their opportunity to attack that. They shouldn't then at a later date say, you said you had all the licenses and you didn't because we gave you all the ones we had and they will all be in a, a schedule with the documents. When we discussed disclosure, Jonathan and I, in episode 24, uh, I was going to say we got quite excited, but that's not strictly true. I think it was mainly me who got excited because there's quite a lot of tactics involved in the use of disclosure and indeed trying to enforce your entitlement to disclosure of documents and information which can help strengthen your case um, weaken an opponent's case uh, can completely change the makeup of the prospects of that case just by virtue of, of just a simple request is disclosure in these sorts of situations used in a similar way or is it, it is as we said before it's because it's cut for a completely different purpose is that just not a uh, an option so do, for example do buyers sometimes ask for disclosure to try and drive the price down because if the seller can't then answer questions as specifically as they want they then try to change the terms to suit their their benefit um, because they will argue that they're more exposed by the by virtue of an absence of a document that gives them that peace of mind it should be the case that in a in a transaction of this nature by the time you get to the disclosure stage any negotiations have ceased the time for the price to be attacked is at the due diligence stage because at the due diligence stage that's when you're looking you're asking questions and all the things that affect the price should be asked and if you don't like the answer then it's subject to further negotiations it's unusual at the disclosure stage for um, the price to be affected. It can be affected and there can be late changes and there can even be instances when a, a buyer will pull out. But usually um, most things the buyer is already aware of, this is just the seller's chance to go on record as making them abundantly obvious. So whereas in litigation, sometimes you'll get parties doing a bit of a dance in terms of what they want to disclose um, and they'll tread very carefully in terms of making sure that they only comply with exactly what they have to in an instance like this if you need to disclose something to qualify a warranty you absolutely have to do it because at a later stage 
when it comes out, you've passed the business over, they will probably find whatever you didn't disclose. And it might be that it gives rise to litigation. Litigation in this area of law can be incredibly expensive because you can be talking about really big sums that go into the millions of pounds that have passed between parties. Um, so it, it is different. Uh, it is tactically different as well. Um, and really the onus is on the seller to make sure that it's done properly and thoroughly. Um, and, the, and the onus is on the buyer to make sure that it's not overdone. Okay. So what kind of documents do get disclosed? What, what would they be? Um, a simple example would be there might be a warranty that we've disclosed. I'm going to say we. I'm assuming for the purpose of this, just because it's led by the seller, that we act for the seller just for illustrative purposes. There might be a warranty that our client um, has disclosed everybody who works for them, whether in a, um, a formulated or in a, a general capacity. Um, you will then, as a disclosure, list everybody again who works for them. And then you'll refer to a schedule in which you include everybody's employment contract. Um, if you miss anybody off that list, then obviously it's problematic because they're going to find out that they do work for them later on. But as long as everyone's on that list, that warranty is dealt with. You can tick it off and move on to the next one. And that's, you know, it's, it's a really basic one and it sounds very straightforward, but you sometimes hear the term accidental employer. Problems are caused when people are um, employed on a very sort of casual basis. And afterwards, they might have a claim against the new uh, owner of that business when they don't want to keep them on. Because as far as the law was concerned, they were an employee. Um, and, and then they find themselves in the throes of litigation. That's the sort of thing that's going to come back on the seller. So when you're again we keep referencing back to disclosure and litigation disclosure and litigation really is is quite narrow compared to this this requires the seller to think about every possibility that each warranty may cause them problems um and then to make sure that they've made suitable disclosures in relation to it and they're all nicely and, and clearly stated in a disclosure letter and also any documentation that evidences what they're saying is also attached as one pack. Okay, and how? at what point does the line get drawn on the disclosure process? At what stage do you agree? How is that formalised? It's really quite straightforward. So once the um, disclosure letter is finalised and it's agreed by both parties... Um, the seller will sign the letter because it is a letter, it's a disclosure letter and then usually there's a section at the bottom in which the buyer will sign it and they just sign that they agree to accept the disclosures that have been made um, once that's done um, it just becomes another document which is referenced at the completion stage which we'll talk about next week uh, both parties have a copy they have a copy of all the documents that go with it and as I say it, it forms the basis of a pack so it's called a letter but it's very much a pack and depending upon the complexity of the transaction it can stretch to many hundreds of pages including all the documents i should stress that johnson and boone act for both the buyer and the seller i mean when 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 we make reference to we and the seller it's only for the purposes of the the examples isn't it 
Um, Absolutely, yeah. We act for both parties regularly um, and we can advise either party uh, depending on, on who approaches us. And we say this every single week, we always try to give people an understanding and a bit of guidance about the things that they might want to try and do themselves because we're not naive enough not to know that people will sometimes whether it be for budgetary reasons or because they legitimately believe that they can do it themselves will have a go at these things i mean i think we were you were quite um clear last week that trying to come up with the agreement itself on your own is certainly not recommended by any way shape or form just because of the complexities of uh, the contents of that and um, if people have tried the diligence due diligence and the agreements stage themselves will they come to someone like johnson and boone for this part or ironically is this probably the easier part of the process it would be unusual for us to be instructed just for this stage um if we are instructed for this stage then it would probably be the case that when we go back because we have to look at the warranties and we look at the agreement and we sort of work backwards that we'll probably advise some of the process be redone because it's unlikely as we discussed last week that someone working on their own um, using a template that they've downloaded from somewhere is is going to be getting this right. But we could, if somebody just wanted specific advice on how to structure what they were doing or how to say what they were doing, we could give that specific advice. The difficulty with um, dealing with this section on your own is that unless you can properly interpret the warranties that are being requested, you don't know what disclosures you need to make. And there might be things that you don't even think of. And obviously, because we deal with the transactions routinely, we've pretty much seen everything that can be disclosed. Um, we've also seen the litigation that will follow somebody that hasn't done the process properly sometimes. So it's, it's well worth getting advice. Um, as, we, as I say, from the seller's perspective, um, this is the chance to avoid those problems later on um, and make sure that you've disclosed everything you need to so there shouldn't be any claims against you. And the flip side as well, I suppose, is that the buyer, if they're not aware, so if the seller is represented and the buyer isn't, there is always a risk that the seller is being advised about how to keep general the disclosure to best protect them for any warranties without the seller, so without the buyer realizing that they're not asking the right questions to just apply a little bit of extra pressure to make sure that the warranties are as solid as they might seem. Absolutely. If the seller's represented and the buyer isn't, the likelihood is that lots of general disclosures will be made and they will render most of the warranties virtually useless. So whilst the buyer might think that all of the promises are in there that they can rely upon, in actual fact, most of them have either been weakened or completely taken away. So it's 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 a very risky thing for, uh, and this goes for both parties, if one party's represented, it's even more dangerous for the other party not to be represented um, because they probably won't understand everything that is, is being put before them. And we were quite encouraging about getting legal advice certainly for the the agreement section which comes before this part because it's so complex i suppose it's really difficult for people to come and get advice from you guys 
on just the disclosure stage because they're kind of that far into the process you you from a from a professional perspective you you guys and 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 you would do it anyway um but have a professional obligation to give sound legal advice on everything that that you're asked and the problem is i guess that if somebody's done a half measured job or have made some critical errors along the way they've come too far down a wrong path and you're essentially advising at that stage well you can ask for this and you can ask them to clarify that but to be perfectly honest you're actually on the wrong path you need to go back turn left and go down a different path and then ask these questions it must be quite hard to to either unpick something or not even be able to unpick because the the client might be saying well I, I don't want you to unpick that but i want you to deal with this and you might be sitting there going well to be honest it's kind of irrelevant yeah i, I don't think it's ever and until the contract has actually been signed at which point um if you haven't done it properly there's very little anyone is able to do then to help you until that point it's always worth speaking to us to see what we can do to help what would be involved um, is it worth you going back? What are the risks? And that will all depend upon the type of, of transaction that you're in. We can limit our retainer with the clients to advise them on specific points. So just because we tell someone that they should do something doesn't mean they have to do it. Um, we'll always set out that a proper process should be followed. And if it hasn't been done properly in the first instance, then yeah, it, it, it might involve a huge amount of repetition. Uh, that might even annoy the other party to the extent that the transaction fails. But it's still better than someone proceeding with something that ultimately is going to lead to very expensive litigation down the line. Um, so I'd say at any stage, if you're unsure, um, then pick up the phone or get in contact with us in, in one of the many ways that you can and, and just use us as a sounding board to actually see whether we, we can help, whether you are on the right lines um, and and how you're getting on really in terms of the process because we'd still be happy to speak to you. We, again, we say this every week, part and parcel of the reason why that we do this podcast is to arm people with the knowledge of when is best to get some advice and I think this is a perfect example of why it's better to come at the beginning of this sort of a process to get it right at the beginning, even if you then do bits yourself thereafter, at least you're doing it armed with some knowledge as opposed to getting to the disclosure stage and then having to get some advice and actually finding out it's going to cost you more because you need to fix a load of things that could have been avoided in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. On simple, um, straightforward transactions, both the due diligence stage and this stage are extremely limited. So whilst we've, we've done an overview, it's more so people understand the global process. Well, sometimes this will be done very quickly, this part. Um, it, you know, it's it's a, a short letter, a couple of documents, because the business isn't something that lends itself to needing those sort of, the sort of time that we're talking about here. It also depends upon what warranties are being requested, because again, if it's a straightforward uh, transaction, it might be that the buyer hasn't requested lots and lots of complex warranties. So even helping people understand what the contract says and whether this stage is even needed at all. It might be there are no disclosures. Um, equally, it might mean every single warranty that's in there shouldn't really be given and, and you need lots and lots of them. So it, you're right, it, 
it is a case that the earlier you can get advice in, in, in matters such as this, the better. But I do repeat that as long as you haven't actually signed the contract and it isn't done and dusted, um, it's never too late to stop, go back and make sure it's right. Ah, the, the calm and serene one in a storm. That's you, Rob. Don't panic. It's all good. We can fix this. We do try, Mark. <laughs> so that actually brings us to the end of part three of this four-parter. Um, what's the topic we're going to be covering in the final part of this series? Final part is the bit that we've just touched on there. And it's it's a completion. So it's the signing of the documents, how that process works. And then also I'm going to do a quick overview in terms of all the other issues that will often come into play um, and the variety of other documents in, in the more complex matters and sometimes in the straightforward um, that will be required how you'd go about getting them and how they interplay really into what happens next so as rob says if you've signed the documents then you're buggered um, if you haven't it's not too late so if you're listening to uh, the show next week um, because you've already signed on the dotted line then you might be finding out what you might need to keep an eye out for but uh, if it's just because you're, you're you're thinking about selling your business or you're thinking about buying a business and this show is helping you to understand the process before you dive in then uh, yeah definitely stay tuned it'll be released this time next week uh, Rob how can people get hold of you if they have any questions on the back of this episode? There's lots of ways, Mark, so they can give us a call, uh, 015 637 2034. Uh, drop us an email to info at uk. They can look us up on any of the social media platforms. So we're on Insta, Facebook, uh, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, you can go to our website and leave us a message via the message pane, uh, or you can download our app. Uh, and you can book a consultation straight into any of our solicitors' diaries. Um, and if you're not sure which one to select, it actually tells you what areas of law each of us specialises in, and then you know you're speaking with the right person. Easy as that. Simply. And it's well worth uh, subscribing to the um, uh, to our social media pages. We're uh, approaching December the 1st in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we always like to have a, a bit of fun over the Christmas period, don't we, Rob? So um, it's it's worth just catching those posts and that content, um, if if for no other reason. Yeah, if people go to our page and they and they give it a like, then they will see all of the the fun that we have through December, um, and we try and lighten things up um, and show that even with law, you can have a bit of a laugh. Um, so there's lots of comedy posts that will be coming uh, right from the 1st of December right the way through till Christmas. And and we might also be having a, a Christmas competition where you can win some interesting goodies um, in December. So keep an eye out for that on the website and on social media too. Right, Rob, that brings us to an end to this episode. Thank you very much for your wisdom and your expertise once again, my friend. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thanks, guys. Get social at Johnson & Boone on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.